Well, thank you for listening today as we continue our study verse by verse through the book of Genesis. I'm your host, Randy Duncan, and today we're going to take a quick look at chapter 13. In the last episode, we wrapped up chapter 12 in our discussion of Abraham going down to Egypt, Sarah being taken by Pharaoh, and then God's subsequent intervention. And chapter 12 ended with Pharaoh giving orders to send Abraham away with Sarah and all that he had, which brings us now to chapter 13. And chapter 13 is going to be one of those shorter chapters. It's a bit more relaxed. It's fairly straightforward. And so it simply doesn't require a lot of additional commentary. So with that, we're just going to dive right in. Verses 1 through 4 read, So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he had journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. So Abraham leaves Egypt for the Negev. Now the Negev, it's simply a a region in southern Israel. And it says that Abraham was, quote, very rich. That Hebrew word, kabed, translated here as rich, is translated elsewhere as severe. And so this is a description of Abraham's significant wealth. Ironically, God has blessed Abraham so much that it will soon become an issue for him and his nephew Lot, who will have to separate. In the previous chapter, we saw that what drove the actions of Abraham was the severe famine in the land. Now, what will drive his action is the severe prosperity that he has enjoyed. Don't ever be fooled into thinking that God only tests you through suffering or through hard times. Many people have stumbled when they feel like that they've made it, you know, when they've arrived, when they they have more than they need. And trust me, there are plenty of miserable and broken and lost rich people. Proverbs 30 verses 8 and 9 say, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In short, what Proverbs is teaching us is to give us what we need, to not bless us with so much that we feel like we don't need God, that we can do it on our own, but not so little that we are so poor that we curse God and that we're then tempted to steal and sin against God. Another point I would have you be sensitive to is the similarity or the foreshadowing of how Abraham went into Egypt during a famine and exited Egypt blessed. It's a foreshadowing of sorts of the Hebrews who would be slaves in Egypt but who would leave taking much with them under the leadership of Moses and the blessings of God. And so Abraham heads toward the Negev, toward Bethel, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there he called on the name of the Lord. It's interesting. It says that Abraham returned to where he was earlier. He's returning to the physical location where he was earlier. But perhaps, and maybe more importantly, he's also returning to the point of his spiritual beginning, back to where he took his first steps of faith, And so the picture is one of Abraham returning to his position of faith. 
Now, I'm sure, maybe tucked away in there somewhere, there's probably some good insight and things that we could learn. And a lesson that maybe we should also be reminded to remember why we took our first initial steps of faith and to perhaps return to that place spiritually. I mean, if you're a Christian listening to this podcast, do you remember when you first accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you remember how you felt? Do you remember how, how you burned inside to learn more about him and to grow in your relationship with him? Well, how do you feel now? Do you still have a passion and a, a desire to learn and to grow your relationship with Christ? And if not, what happened? You know, it's, it's very easy to sort of slowly slide into a routine in a place where we spend less and less time on our relationship with God. I mean, we're all busy. Most of us have lives whose days are filled with activities from the time we wake up until the time we hit the bed each night. And it doesn't matter whether it's long work hours or all the lessons and practices and activities your children have or the TV shows that you just can't miss, you just have to watch, or even the, the countless hours spent scrolling on Facebook so that you can see the same people posting the same things day after day. The point is that we've become so busy that we've allowed some of the supposed urgent things in our lives to interrupt the truly important things. Don't ever let the urgent preempt the truly important things in life. We're so busy that we don't seem to have time for God. And we seem to be able to scroll on Facebook for 20 minutes a pop five times a day, but we can't seem to squeeze in 20 minutes a day to pray or to read our Bible. I mean, be honest with yourself and just compare the time that you spend on social media with the time that you spend on reading God's Word or even in prayer. Compare the amount of time you spend absorbing and eating a steady diet of the propaganda fed to you on Fox and CNN to the time that you spend reading God's Word every day. Sadly, you know, many people act as though you know, what Tucker Carlson or Anderson Cooper says is more important than what God has to teach us. The reality is that we'll spend time doing what's most important to us. We can always seem to, to find time to do the things that we really want to do. Maybe we should all spend a little less time on Facebook and a little more time in the Holy Book. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 6.21 that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I would argue that that same thing, that same principle applies to where we spend our time. I mean, the most precious resource that any of us have in this life is time. I think you can often look at how a person spends their time and determine what's most important in their life. And here we find Abraham going back to the place of his physical and spiritual beginning in his walk with God. Perhaps many of us should consider doing the same. Verses 5 through 7 read, And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the problem now is not the famine. The problem now is the severity and abundance of their blessing. 
so much so that the land couldn't support both Abraham and Lot. Their competing needs could not be met by the available resources of the area, which leads to conflict with the herdsmen. Verses 8 and 9 say, Then Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, or brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or, if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So Abraham, even though he's the elder, in a socially superior position, humbles himself. He's the one who puts the peace of the family before his own aspirations, before his individual prosperity. Abraham is the one who initiates a way to peace here. I mean, they were living in an ideal environment, but the ideal environment was not bringing about peace. And we've seen this before. Cain and Abel were raised in the ideal environment, but it didn't bring about peace. Creating the ideal environment alone, creating the, the wish-for utopia, will not bring about peace on its own. You know, some people would argue that the United States of America is the greatest nation to ever exist in the history of the world. It's the ideal environment, relatively speaking. And although we have peace in sort of legal terms, what is your sense for how much peace we have right now in our country? And you may say, look, we have peace in America. And I would agree, relatively speaking, we do. But how many people have true peace? I mean true peace. Because despite outward appearances, there are an awful lot of hurting people out there in the world. You see, creating ideal environments alone can't bring about peace in that sense. Sin originated in the ideal environment. True and lasting peace comes only through surrendering your heart to God. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And Paul, writing in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So my suggestion, if you're truly searching for peace, turn to Jesus. So Abraham offers Lot the first choice of land, and then he will take whatever Lot doesn't choose. It's a pretty generous offer. So what does Lot do? What does he choose? Verses 10 through 12 tell us, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So Lot looks out and he sees. And he sees what he perceives to be the best of the land, watered everywhere like the Garden of God, which I'm assuming is a reference to the Garden of Eden. Now, we sort of have to infer here that Lot chooses selfishly. He chose what he thought was the best land for himself and left the other land for Abraham. 
And it just seems like the right thing to do would have been to look out, assess the land, and out of respect for Abraham, tell him which land looked the best, and tell Abraham that as the patriarch, he should take that land for himself, out of reverence, out of respect for Abraham. Abraham didn't have to give him anything, but that's not what Lot does here. One interesting observation I'd like to point out. Notice the recurrence of that phrase, towards the east, in Genesis. Each time we see people moving away from God, it's been associated with the east. When Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, which direction do they go? When the people settled in Shinar, where the episode of the Tower of the Bible occurred, which direction? East. And again, here, which way does Lot journey? To the east. Now, maybe there's nothing to it, but perhaps as Armstrong notes, the easterly direction had come to symbolize distance and exile from the divine presence. And without the sacred, there could be no blessing. So Abraham settles in Canaan. Lot settles among the cities of the valley and moved his tent where? As far as Sodom. Yikes. And why do I say that? Verse 13 gives us a hint. Verse 13 reads, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So verses 12 and 13 contrast the two places where each man settled. Abraham settles in Bethel, where he built an altar. Lot's camp points to the, the infamous and wicked city of Sodom. And I have to think that Lot at least knew of Sodom. He had heard of Sodom and the people there. And yet, he still chooses to move there. It makes you wonder why people make some of the decisions that they make. You know, perhaps Lot thought, hey, I'm pretty well off. I've been blessed. I have material wealth. And I can take this better land, increase my wealth, and also enjoy the city life and all that it offers. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I don't have anything against cities. In fact, I enjoy traveling to cities all over the country. And I love much of what they afford, and I enjoy experiencing the different things that they offer. I mean, heck, I live in the downtown part of my city. It's not the city that's the issue. It's the mindset and the attitude that's the issue here. But what was it that really enticed Lot? Did he choose the land because he thought it would make him even more wealthy? And in doing so, simply ignore the fact that the people who lived there were completely immoral? I mean, what was it that he was truly seeking? I'm reminded of James 1, 14 and 15, which tells us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And Lot, unfortunately, is going to find this out over the next few chapters, culminating with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but even trouble in the next chapter. Verses 14 through 18, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes, and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. 
So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So just like Lot lifted up his eyes and looked, now God instructs Abraham to lift up his eyes and look. Now this word look means not only to look, but to see. There's a big difference. And God has Abraham look in each direction, sort of a a panoramic view, and once again promises to give all the land to Abraham and his descendants. God also once again tells Abraham that his descendants will be many, like the dust of the earth. And although it's not recorded in scripture, I have to wonder if Abraham was still a bit confused about this part of the promise, since remember, Sarah is still unable to have children. And God tells Abraham also to get up and walk the land, to walk the length and the breadth of it. And that's interesting because back in the day, kings asserted their right to rule a territory by symbolically tracing out its boundaries, or they would have processions around the walls of a city to stake their new claim or assert their kingship. Some of the early Jewish commentators understood this traversing the length and the breadth of the land to be a a symbolic act constituting a mode of legal acquisition, according to Sarna. So Abraham settles in Mamre, in Hebron. This is actually the place where Abraham is buried, as is Sarah, and Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Leah. And once Abraham settled there, what does he do? He builds an altar to God. And in his walk, he has said, It is a proper response to God's renewed promise and an appropriate conclusion to this scene. And I agree. And I'll close out this episode with, once again, having you reflect upon Abraham's returning to the place of his spiritual beginning and encourage you to consider doing the same. God will be there, is there, waiting for you. Hebrews 13.5 tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Romans 8, 38 and 39 tells us that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As always, thank you for listening. And I hope you'll join me again in the next episode where we'll discuss Abraham's rescue of Lot. And until then, God bless.